You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. got a Bible with you this morning. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, I believe is where we're starting. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, all the way through the end of the chapter. And um, Caesarea Philippi is our city. And I learned one thing this week from my studies, and that is I do not know how to spell Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I I mean, I I had to write it like 30 or 40 times writing this message, and I could not spell it. I mean, I I finally got Philippi down. I finally figured out how to spell Philippi, but Caesarea, I never figured out. And not even to the point where Spellcheck would take a guess. And that's how you know you're a bad speller. If if Spellcheck's like, that's it, I'm out. I don't know what you're trying to say. Uh, That's how you know you're a bad speller. And that happens to me way more often than it should. But uh, we are in a series right now. If you join us for the first time today, whether you're online for the first time today or in the room for the first time, we're, we're in a series that is designed to focus our hearts and minds on Jesus as we enter the Easter season. So we're just three or four weeks away from Easter, and so we're trying to kind of hone our focus in on Jesus as we move into Easter. And we're doing it through a, a study called A Tale of Five Cities, which is using five key cities that Jesus visited in his earthly ministry, and in each city, he unveiled just a little bit more of his identity. He kind of told a little bit more of who he was. So we're looking at, we're going to Nazareth, Caesarea Philippi, uh, Bethany, Jerusalem, and Emmaus. And Emmaus will end us on uh, Easter Sunday. And so last week, it was Jesus was in Nazareth, and he was back in his hometown. He was at likely his home synagogue. He read a passage from Isaiah, He began to teach, and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he was saying something very, very significant there, but it's unlikely that the audience really knew what he was saying. It's like it was just the beginning of the sermon. They were a little more worried about the end of the sermon. They tried to kill him over the end of the sermon, so they were more worried about the end of the sermon than the beginning of the sermon. But what he was saying was, I'm the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. So he just kind of opened up just a little window in there. He didn't come right out and say it, so it kind of went over everybody's head, maybe even over the disciples' heads, but he was opening up this little window. In Caesarea Philippi, with his disciples at least, not with the crowds, but with his disciples, he, he blows the door wide open, and he says, I am the Messiah. And he starts to teach about why he came. So that's the, that's the story we're going to be, uh, Matthew chapter 16, before we get there, let me tell you just a little bit about the city, because I'm just doing research I think is interesting on these, on these cities. So Caesarea Philippi is not on this map. Uh, if, if you go up to the very top, the right-hand corner of this map, on the Sea of Galilee right there, and you go straight up, that's where Caesarea Philippi is. It's about 55 miles northeast of Nazareth, which is not that far in today's time, but in Jesus' time, that would have been a, a pretty good journey uh, to visit Caesarea Philippi. And don't think desert here. I know a lot of this area we think desert, but Caesarea Philippi was at the source of the Jordan River, and so it was a very beautiful country. There was a lot of water there. There's, you know, lush valleys and groves of trees, and it's at the base of Mount Hermon, and there's a famous cave, you know, grotto there to the god Pan. So here's, here's a couple things we know about Caesarea Philippi. It's much more prominent and important city than Nazareth was. Um, and it was a religious center going back to the time of the Canaanites. So before Israel took possession of the land, it was a 
pagan religious center, and there was a shrine built at the base of Mount Hermon to the Greek god Pan, who's the half-goat, half-man god of nature. And uh, actually, the, the city was named after him. The name of the city changed to Caesarea Philippi during the time of Jesus, or right before the time of Jesus. Philip uh, rebuilt the city and decided, hey, I'll name it after myself. So he named it Philippi, and then he named it after Caesar. That's where we got the Caesarea. And uh, I think it's significant that Jesus chose, and even in Jesus' time, it was known primarily for its you know, pagan religious activities. So I, I, you know, it's, I think it's significant that Jesus chose that city and that location to re reveal to his disciples his true identity. And that's where we'll begin uh, the story right here. So we're going to start reading in verse 13. And once again, I got a Bible open here, but it's just a backup for me. I'm going to use the screen because um, I can see that a whole lot better. So Matthew chapter 16 Beginning at verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that's a term, Son of Man, that Jesus frequently used to describe himself. It's got messianic overtones, but it also kind of refers to his identity. And it tells us, there's a little bit of a hint here, that Jesus is well-known in this region. He was well-known by the time he went to Nazareth. So by the time he comes to Caesarea Philippi, People are talking about Jesus. People are talking about who this rabbi is that's doing these miracles and, and healing people and, and teaching in the synagogues. And so people are talking about him. And Jesus is just asking the disciples, what are people saying about me? And this is the answer. It says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I want to go back to that, that question Jesus asked. There's a lot going on here, so just let's, let's take a look at what, what's happening. Jesus has been dropping hints about his identity. So ever since his earthly ministry began, he's been kind of dropping hints about his identity, but it's not been crystal clear. Um, his healing ministry is some, ident's, uh, some hints about his identity, and people are talking. Like I said, I mean, the, 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 he's the buzz of, of Israel, especially in and around Nazareth and Caesarea Philippi in these areas. I mean, people are talking about this rabbi who's healing people, who's turning water into wine. Who's, I mean, all of these things, people are talking. And so Jesus asked the, the, you know, who are the crowds say that I am? And the crowds say, we don't know. He's John the Baptist, he's Jeremiah, he's Isaiah, he's, he's a prophet. It's interesting to me that none of the crowds say he's the Messiah. Because remember I told you last week, the Messiah was a hotly debated topic at the time. They're looking for the Messiah. They're anticipating the Messiah. They're all arguing over who, when the Messiah is going to come and who the Messiah is going to be. So the crowds don't recognize him as the Messiah yet, but they also don't recognize him as an ordinary rabbi. They recognize that there's something special about Jesus. They don't, th th he teaches with an authority unlike the other rabbis. Uh, he's healing people. There's something special about Jesus. He must be a prophet of some sort. 
And so Jesus you know, comes right out and asks uh, his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, without hesitation, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The way the old NIV uh, translated it was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you've ever seen me do a baptism at Murray Hills, you know we always ask a question before somebody's baptized. We say, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And it's a, based on that confession, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reason we ask that question is it, it's very closely connected to this confession. Asking, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, is very similar to asking, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? So that is, and a lot of times I will say it, that is the most basic confession of the Christian faith. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That is the most basic definition of of who a christian is because we believe jesus is the messiah we're willing to surrender our lives to him through baptism and so peter makes this confession and jesus compliments him and says hey you didn't figure this out on your own because i've been dropping hints and nobody else has figured that out yet so you didn't figure this out on your own the spirit must have given this to you and so he compliments him and says i tell you the truth you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and that's a very simple little phrase right very, very simple little phrase. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's nothing controversial about that. There's nothing to argue about that. There's no debates about that. There's nothing to fight about there, right? If you know your church history, just like a good Facebook post that blows up in your face, uh, it, <laughs> there's plenty to argue about in that little bitty verse where Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Because pe- people have debated and argued this for years, and they said, well, was Jesus referring to Peter the man? As in Peter's going to be the leader of the New Testament church. Peter's going to start the New Testament church. Peter's going to be the, the first pope of the New Testament church. And you go in Acts. It kind of feels that way. Acts chapter 2. Peter started the New Testament church. Well, I, I'd argue the Spirit started the New Testament church. Jesus started the New Testament church. Peter was, was the vessel that he ended up using. But the, the other question is, is it talking about Peter the man or is it talking about Peter's confession? Because he said, you are Peter, the name Peter means uh, rock, and that's when he changed Simon's name to Peter. You're the rock on which I will build my church. And to me, I think he's talking about Peter's confession. I think that's the confession upon which the New Testament church is built. He's not talking about, I'm going to build it on a man. He's talking about, I'm going to build it on a confession. I'm going to build the church on this foundation that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the, that is the foundation upon which the church is built. Um, and then he says, this is, this is interesting right here. Look at verse 20, because you may have already read. If you got your own Bible, you may have already read. So we're going to build around the church around the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And then what he says in verse 20 is this. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. And I, I'll, if, you, if you're just reading the story, following along, you're like... Wait a minute, what? Why, why not? Isn't this the, the whole purpose that Jesus came is to reveal that he's the Messiah. Like the, the reason he's come is to unveil his identity. So why would he tell his disciples, I am the Messiah, and then tell them, but don't tell anybody? Well, there's a good reason. You remember this is a hotly debated topic, and this is a controversial topic, the question of the Messiah. There's a lot of debate going on about who the Messiah is. And there were some zealots within Judaism that were just waiting for a revolution to start as soon as the Messiah came because they understood the term Messiah in national and political terms more than they understood it in spiritual terms. So they were waiting, the Messiah was going to be this ideal king 
who uh, rescued and redeemed Israel from the power of Rome and restored the righteous rule of God to the nation of Israel. And they were only partly right on that. They were right about the rescue. They were right about the redeeming. They were right about the righteous reign of God. They were wrong about Rome. So they, they saw the Messiah in cultural terms rather than spiritual terms or political and national terms rather than spiritual terms. And 2,000 years later, we still make the same mistake. We, we still are very, very tempted. That's just, I guess it's part of human nature. We say the way the kingdom of God is going to be established is by political power. The way the kingdom of God is going to be established is by national power. And Jesus said, I wasn't coming to create a theocracy. I wasn't coming to, to create this, you know, this, this nation. I, I was coming to establish a kingdom. And you're just being a little short-sighted here. It's, yes, I'm not rescuing and redeeming you from Rome. I'm rescuing you, redeeming you from sin itself. I'm rescuing and redeeming you from death itself. I'm not coming to establish an earthly kingdom. I'm coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. I'm com- not coming to establish a temporary kingdom. And all earthly kingdoms are temporary. I'm coming to establish an eternal kingdom. And so that's why he tells them, don't tell anybody yet. Because they're not ready to hear it yet. I mean, I don't think Jesus is like, if I start telling people I'm the Messiah, it's either going to start a revolution against Rome or it's going to get me killed. And it will eventually get him killed. But it's like, let's don't tell anybody yet. I want, to, I want you to know as my disciples who I am and what my identity is. But there's so much misunderstanding and confusion about my identity. I want to make sure that you guys are crystal clear on who I am before we start telling the rest of the world about this. And then immediately we see that they are not crystal clear on who he is because it says this it says from that time on so after Jesus revealed his identity I am the Messiah from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life now in in the Jewish mind this is not the way the Messiah works The Messiah is coming with power and force to rule and reign. And now Jesus is talking about the Messiah coming with sacrifice and laying down his life for many. So Peter takes God aside to explain God to God. Okay, so they, uh, this is Peter, like in the first part of the story, Peter gets everything right. Like Jesus says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the living God. And he said, you're exactly right, Peter. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. In three days, I'll be raised to life. And he goes, no, 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 that's not the way it works. You, you are the Messiah, but you apparently don't understand how the Messiah works. So he explains the way a Messiah is supposed to work to the Messiah. I love this part right here. Um, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block of me because you, have, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now put all this in context. If, if Peter's confusion is the Messiah is going to be national and political more than spiritual... Jesus is trying to reset Peter's expectations and all the disciples' expectations to say, you're worried about human concerns. I want you to worry about God's concerns. And I give Peter, I, you know, like, we, we're hard on Peter. Like once, Whenever we meet Peter in heaven, we're all going to have to apologize to him, because, especially preachers, because we're hard on him whenever, you know, whenever we teach on, on the apostle Peter. 
I kind of feel for him right here because I think in many cases we have done the same thing with God in our prayer life. Sometimes we like to take God aside and rebuke him because he doesn't respond in the way that we think he should respond and he's not acting in the way that we should think he should act. So it's like, you know, God, I prayed for healing and I'm not being healed. This is not the way it's supposed to work. God, I prayed for good things to happen in my life and good things aren't happening in my life. This is not the way it's supposed to work. So, so sometimes we also rebuke God. Maybe not as directly as Peter pulling him aside and saying, God, this is, you know, but we, we do a lot of the same things. And, and Jesus tells him, you know, you, you've got the wrong concerns in mind. You're worried about human concerns. You need to be worried about God's concerns because God does not operate according to your concerns. And then he tells them, let me tell you what it's going to be like to, to follow in this kingdom that the Messiah is establishing. Verse 24. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that last, verse 28 is a confusing verse, and there's been a lot of controversy and confusion about that. I really think it's a simple explanation. Read chapter 17, and it explains the end of chapter 16, because what happens is six days later, the transfiguration occurs there in Caesarea Philippi as well. So Caesarea Philippi is famous because of this Peter's confession of Christ and also the transfiguration. But I want you to focus in on verses 24, 25, and 26 because this is Jesus is defining what it looks like to follow him so he's he's revealed his identity to his disciples he's resetting their expectation of what a messiah does and now he's resetting their expectation of what it looks like to follow the messiah because we tend to think well if you follow the messiah if you follow the christ then good things are going to come to you if you follow the Christ, then, you know, everything's going to work out the way it's supposed to. You know, if you follow the Christ, then, it, it, you know, life's just going to be. Jesus resetting expectations all throughout this passage right here. Uh, I want to show it to you. Just, I, I want to reread it in the NIV. I want to read it in the message. I just want this to sink in. Listen to these words of the Christ. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to, lose, wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What good is it to get political power and forfeit your soul? What good is it for your nation to be the best nation and forfeit your soul? What good is it to accumulate all the wealth in the world and forfeit your soul? What good is it to have all the success in the world and forfeit your soul? What good is it to have all the perfect things of this life, for this life to be absolutely perfect and let lose your soul? He's trying to expand their view of the kingdom. This is much, much bigger than an earthly kingdom. This is much, much bigger than a temporary kingdom. Here's the way the message puts it, and I like this just because it makes us think a little differently. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? And what could you ever trade your soul for? So Jesus is very clearly asking his disciples to do three things. 
He said, I want you to deny yourself, meaning stop making it about you and your concerns. I want you to take up your cross, which is a willingness to suffer, but is also a willingness to sacrifice your interest for the interest of others. And I want you to follow me, meaning do the things I do and live the way I live. It's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is to put my concerns on the back burner and, and to deny myself and my concerns so that I'm concerned with the things of God to sacrifice my interest for the interest of others, which is what Jesus did on former cross, and then to follow in his way of life, which is to follow his teachings, but also to follow and observe his way of life. For what good does it do you? What does it profit man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And what could a person give in exchange for their soul? And what Jesus is hitting at here is, is like the ultimate questions of life. The questions that all of us should be asking but avoid. He's hitting at the, the, the most important questions of life. And trying to get us to think eternally rather than temporary. And we're so tempted to think temporary. Because the world rewards temporary success. Uh, and God rewards eternal success. And so we're so tempted to think that way. But Jesus is trying to get us to, to re- change our mindset. To change the way we think. As I'll give you a great example of it, and it's in this, this little book right here. I, I, I'm reading a lot right now of, about death, and that's not some kind of morbid fascination on my part. It's, I'm preparing for our Easter series, and so I've got about four books going right now that um, are about the afterlife and death, and, how we, and, and the series I'm going to start after Easter is called The Afterlife, What Happens When We Die? I think it's the most important question, but it is also the most avoided question. We don't want to talk about that. We want to think in much, much narrower terms. And uh, this little book right here, and you can, I brought it just so you can see, it's a tiny little book. It's a, it's a very easy, quick read. It's actually not even a book. It's a sermon. Tim Keller wrote it and, and preached it at his sister-in-law's death. And it's, it's very, very helpful for understanding a Christian perspective on death and a Christian perspective on the afterlife. So if you've recently lost somebody, I would, this is like 80 pages. You can read it in one sitting. I would recommend this book. But he makes a point in here that I, as I was reading these, these teachings of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 16, Keller makes a point using an argument of Paul that I think put it all together for me. Uh, the argument of Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 19, where Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, and, and Paul is, is again like expanding this mindset. If, 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 if we think that this life is all about this life, then we're to be pitied. I mean, if, if we think these 70, 80, 90, 100 years, if you're lucky, we, if we think this, the time upon this earth is the, per, like the purpose of our life is this life, then, man, what a pity. There's there got to be more. And that's why when you tie all that in with, with Jesus, the, the idea that, you know, what, what would it profit somebody to get everything you wanted out of this life? Because we've all got dreams and hopes and, and plans for this life. So if all your plans were fulfilled and all your dreams were fulfilled and you got everything you wanted, financially, relationally, uh, physically, you got everything you wanted and all your prayers were answered for this life, what good does it profit somebody to gain the whole world and lose your soul? 
That's what Jesus is hitting at here. And that's why this question that Jesus asked his disciples is the most important question. Who do you say I am? Our answer to that question determines our eternal destiny. That's why, that's why it's the most important question. If Jesus is the Messiah, then he has come to rescue and redeem us from sin. And if he is the resurrected Messiah, then he has come to offer us eternal life. And so how we answer that question is the most important question that we can answer. What do we believe about Jesus? If we believe he is the Messiah, then we'll surrender our lives to him and we'll follow him and we'll gain eternity with him in heaven. If we don't, we won't. And I will... I don't want to get into my Easter message just yet, uh, but in my Easter series just yet. But I mean, that's the most basic question. If Jesus is the Messiah, then I should surrender everything to him. That's why we ask before somebody, you know, you realize baptism is an act of surrender, right? It's not like, a, like the, the act of baptism is surrendering something. It's a, it's a physical symbol representation of somebody surrendering their heart and life to Jesus. It actually is about death because Jesus says when we go under the water, or Paul says this actually. Paul says when we go under the water, it represents death. And when we come up out of the water, it represents new life. And that's why before somebody dies, we ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Because if he is the son of God, then you're willing to die. I'm willing to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him if he is the son of God. And that's why we ask that question before baptism. Um, I, I want to offer an opportunity for you to, to do that. We don't, I want to offer an invitation, so to speak. Um, we don't walk the aisle anymore, uh, if you guys remember that. And, and we don't uh, do a sinner's prayer where people raise their hand and close their eyes, everybody close their eyes and raise their hand. We don't do any of that. What we do is say, uh, listen, if you're ready to follow Jesus with your life, if you, you, know, you believe in Jesus but you've never been baptized into Jesus, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, then uh, simply talk to somebody. You can talk to me, you can talk to any of our ministers here, you can talk with, uh, well, you can talk with any of our members here and say, listen, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to be baptized. I, I'd like to surrender my life to Jesus. And we give you an opportunity to do that on the card as well. There's a place on the card you can mark, you know, I, I want to be baptized. You can send me an email, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my cell phone's pretty much out there, I think, everywhere. So, I mean, you, any way that you want to say, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm, I do believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I'm ready to surrender my life to him. And uh, that comes with it, the, the promise of forgiveness of sins, that comes with it, the promise of the Holy Spirit, but also comes with it, the promise of eternal life. And that's in Romans chapter 6. And I, I, that's why I always read that. If we've participated with him in a death like his, we will certainly participate with him in a resurrection like his. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm still in my Easter thunder. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to pray. And uh, if you are ready to be baptized, and if you're online, uh, you send us a direct message. Ebony's watching right now. So send us a direct message or just comment in the comment section and say, I'd like to be baptized. I'm ready. Um, I just don't think you can preach Matthew chapter 16 without giving people an opportunity to respond to Matthew chapter 16. You can't preach the most foundational text of the New Testament and what it means to be a Christian without giving people the opportunity to become Christians. So that's why I wanted to do that. Let me, let me pray for us. And we got, I think we just got one thing to do after this. So let me pray. Uh, Father, um, <laughs> I always feel like, like with a text like this, there's such a, a grand truth revealed, and I always feel like you know, we fall short in explaining it or even grasping it. Like it's, it's so hard to grasp the significance of what happened uh, there when, when Peter confessed the identity of Jesus. 
And uh, in, a, in a world like today where everything's confused, people are spiritual but not religious, and, you know, we, that's just, it, there's so much confusion about what it means to be spiritual. And as Christians, we believe what it means is to, to confess who you are, to confess that, that your son is the savior of this world and that salvation comes through him and him alone. And that's, we, that's what we confess. We confess that he is the Messiah. And uh, we believe that he died and he rose again and he sits at your right hand and he will one day come again to redeem us and to rescue us from this earth. So, Father, I pray for, for those that are in the room or those that are watching online right now that are maybe thinking about making a commitment, maybe thinking about surrendering their life to you. Uh, I pray that you would convict them and, and uh, encourage them to, to do so. And uh, I pray for all of those with family members that, you know, we, a lot of us have folks that we've been praying for and, and hoping that they would one day come to faith or they would one day come to see you. And so I, I, I pray for those too, the, those for the family members that uh, are still thinking, wrestling through, uh, trying to make sense of this world and make sense of your identity. And uh, I'm thankful for your word that reveals to us who your son Jesus was. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.